This is the Forbes interview on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do deep dive interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. These are the faces you see on the cover of Forbes. And if they aren't in the cover, they easily could be. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. Today, we have Dean Metropolis, the CEO and founder of Metropolis and Companies. And Dean is a serial turnaround artist who's bought, revived, and sold brands that we've all enjoyed and bought over the years. Pat's Blue Ribbon, Bumblebee Tuna, Chef Boyardee, and more recently, Hostess, obviously home of the Twinkies. Dean, thank you for coming on. You're very welcome, Steve. So let's talk about Hostess. I mean, when Hostess went away, it was kind of a national mourning for this classic American snack. They thought it was over. Then you guys came in and revived it. I want to hear that story. I'd love to see what got your attention first and then how you pulled the trigger on the deal and then fixed it that was broken for so long. Well, first of all, we recognized that it was a super brand, a brand that had tremendous heritage with the U.S. consumers. It had um, it had tremendous potential to innovate and to continue to, to survive, and uh, that was the first start of our interest. Secondly, we obviously assessed that there was it was having a number of issues and challenges, um, <clears throat> many of them which related to the burden of the balance sheet, too much debt, uh, a lot of assets underutilized, uh, a lot of contracts that uh, could not have been easily changed, and the Chapter 7 process allowed us to take that, and by the way, it's the first transaction we bought through Chapter 7, which is the final bankruptcy, the business mm-hmm. shuts down. We have bought a few others through Chapter 11, but this one's the first one out of Chapter 7. <clears throat> but that process effectively allowed us to um, to take only the assets we wanted and the contracts that uh, were limiting the company's flexibility to, to, to continue to run as an agile, highly innovative business. So those elements were there. We loved the brand. We, think, we thought the brand was still very relevant. Consumers had a lot of loyalty to it. And we provided the vehicle to, to effectively restructure it and uh, to move forward with it. Were you a Twinkie fan before, before that? I've been eating Twinkies since I was a kid. <laughs> they put a smile on my face. How do you go from saying, oh, this is an interesting brand that's for sale to actually saying, I'm going to buy this brand? Well, you participate in a process like a lot of the transactions we do. And, and, and in that process, uh, you put your best foot forward as to what you think you can do with that business. And if you're fortunate enough to to win the process, and in this case, not too many buyers could un- understand how do you take a brand or a business, I should say, out of Chapter 7 that had shut down its plants, that hadn't made money in many years, even before the, the bankruptcy, and how do you turn it back into a vital company? And I think as a consequence, there were not too many buyers. Um, we understood the space very well. We, uh, we felt very comfortable about the transformation of the business and the assets we were taking. So that allowed us to be one of the couple players that uh, participated in the process. And with, with Hostess, a lot of people and big companies had tried and failed to revive it. What made you guys and your partners at Apollo think that this was a good bet and you could make this change? I, I think uh, two reasons. Number one, that, um, again, we assessed that cleaning up a lot of the structure that had put this company into, in, in, effectively into a vice, that it didn't have the flexibility to be able to change its model was being broken up through the Chapter 7 process. Uh, we also saw that 
the company had not been, they had several CEOs over a few years. They had a lot of balance sheet challenges, uh, a lot of leverage. Uh, those are, particularly when you have a highly structured company as they were through through the way they were organized and the model of business they were running, it is very hard to have a lot of leverage, a lot of management turnover, and at the same time have a business that you can't transform and not, not breathe into it the agility to make decisions and invest behind new, new ideas for growth. And there was a, a structural business model, but also you changed the products. And the, one of the key things is everyone thinks Twinkies last forever. They think it's this, it can survive nuclear wars and everything. It can't. But you guys, the, one of the tricks was you made the, the shelf life of Twinkie, which is notoriously very shelf-stable, as they say in the business, even longer. How did you do that, and how did that help save this company? I think two things. Surprisingly enough, the company hostess, before its bankruptcy, had been doing a lot of work for about two or three years to extend the shelf life. How do you extend it? You use natural enzymes. You adjust the moisture. Too much moisture tends to break down the product faster. All those scientific things that uh, had been already put to work, we refined those and put them into motion. Uh, and that gave us the ability to extend the shelf life to 65 days from 26, 27, and that allowed us to change the model, which was critical uh, to the company's turnaround. The model, instead of going up and down the street delivering to every little C-store, every supermarket, uh, we went to the warehouse of these uh, C-stores and the the supermarkets, and that took out 20,000 trucks that were running around the countryside delivering, making $50 stops or $60 stops to deliver Twinkies and cupcakes and so on. And now we deliver full trucks or half a truck, and that makes a very big difference. And you mentioned before that you were, the fact that Twinkies went bankrupt, it went away. They were on shelves for six months, and you brought it back. You were surprised, like, were you surprised by the outpouring of, of kind of excitement when it came back in? Because Twinkies is so, they're nostalgic, but they're also very out of vogue. I mean, you know, sugary snacks are not exactly what everyone's pushing these days. But you said people came up to you when you launched and were like wanted to you know give you a hug right <laughs> yeah i did i get some nice hugs <laughs> uh it was a very unusual brand i must tell you we've had we've owned some beautiful brands both here in europe and elsewhere um and the emotional connection to the twinkie and this brand was incredible surprising uh, perhaps blue ribbon had an incredible connection but not quite maybe it's because this died and it told america you know, growing up, this product is gone. Maybe that's what it is. And people felt very sad. They felt like they were losing a relative, a cousin, someone, something that's been around them all their lives. And uh, it was a very unusual loss to American consumers. And in fact, American, the press, consumers, retailers, everybody felt like they lost a relative. And th that was very unusual. I mean... Twinkie we, the Kid is everyone's, everyone's exactly, cousin, right? Exactly. Everybody's cousin. So it was a, a hugely emotional return. And yes, people were appreciative. And I think uh, we, we're glad that it's there for the next 100 plus years. And um, we're going to work very hard to ensure that it, it continues to be relevant. And that's the key to all these brands. How do you evolve them to be relevant with new levels of consumer concerns? How do you do that? I mean, you had a great bump because you brought this nostalgic old 1950s-style snack back. But how do you evolve Hostess, especially these days when a lot of the zeitgeist in many circles is anti-sugar, anti-kind of process. They want you know fresh chia seeds, mm -hmm. green, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. How do you innovate with Hostess these days? 
Well, I think two things. I can tell you, first of all, one cannot forget that there's a base consumer and consumption patterns that are that really enjoy. And in fact, somebody just sent me an article out of the one of the wonderful newspapers, and and that this in the, this article talked about. Well, I love my sugar. I don't have to eat it two pounds a day, mm-hmm. but it makes if if it makes me happy, you know, that's part of my health too. If it's emotional, psychological, so you cannot forget the base consumer's desires. At the same time, I must tell you, if not once a month, we have all these outside labs that come into us and talk to us about how do we evolve, not to walk away from what we have, to introduce new products mm-hmm. and new versions of a product, even if it cannibalizes. We understand if you introduce a new product that has different elements to it and ingredients, it's gonna cannibalize some of the, the, the conventional one, but that's okay. So we talk continually about uh, how to evolve this product line to meet what consumers are looking for today and, and, and still achieve a desire to that product. And it's probably the number one concern that we talk about at least once a month with outside scientific labs, with university labs. Mm-hmm. We're doing some work, R&D work, with several universities across the country to exactly meet some, some of the healthier offerings that you're talking about while still offering and not losing the consumer that enjoys it for the smile on their face. So we have organic, our organic Twinkies coming down the line? Um, it, it, certainly there'll be new products in, in, our, in, uh, in Hostess that will have less uh, sugar in, in them and um, uh, a, a profile that, uh, that, that allows them to, to address the concern of some of today's consumers, which talks about, uh, as you said, uh, processed elements and, uh, and, and the sugar element. So what are you excited about? What's, what's down the line we can look forward to? Well, I think the company will continue to evolve its product line. A lot of innovation. We introduce 50 new products a year in the past two years. Um, we look for some acquisitions that might take us into the much more organic and natural yeah. space uh, and put a lot of emphasis behind those. So we think Hostess will continue to grow, just like us, uh, which is the other company we recently got involved with. It's all about, first of all, structuring those businesses to be much more efficient, accountable, uh, very transparent in terms of and the analytics that we use to drive them, and at the same time then go to the next level and innovate them. And it's a, it's an, innovation's a wonderful, wonderful area today, and there's a lot of excitement and a lot of opportunities to look at. And you're a private equity guy because you buy these brands and revive them so you can have they're, – they're private, so you have your pace, your full control. You don't have to worry about investors and worry about market swings. Um, Hostess has recently gone public. How does that change how you guys are operating now that you're at the mercy of the markets? Well, you know, uh, what I say to myself, we're, my sons and I, who have been a critical part in my career and in these investments because they usually lend the judgment to the brand, mm-hmm. um, we're still the biggest investor in the public company you know, of Hostess, and we like it. We obviously feel very comfortable about it. Perspective, we're going to continue to stick our nose to the grindstone are bring focus and a culture of execution and innovation and drive it as if we owned it ourselves. You know, we've bought and sold many, many tens of companies in the consumer space. There's not one company, and we take a lot of pride in it, that has been sold forward. They continue to do well, well after we've launched, relaunched them, sent them forward. And the whole idea is to continue to build a great business. We have a wonderful strategy for Hostess that's going to continue to, to grow. Um, and it'll be a different company than it is today, three, four years from today. It's probably going to have several other dimensions to it. 
So you're a big you're a big food guy. I think Forbes in the past dubbed you Mr. Shelf Space just because mm. you've done such an incredible job buying these classic food and drink brands um, and turning them around. Why do you like what brought you to food? Why do you focus on that category? I think it was probably luck. I mean, my early career was with General Telephone Electronics. It was the most exciting part of my life. I was the youngest CFO in Europe, Middle East, and Africa, became a senior VP for the international business, a $2.5 billion business with joint ventures on almost every continent. And mm-hmm. um, it was the most exciting time in my life. Currencies were fluctuating. Uh, we had a lot of local regulations. We made acquisitions through that platform. And um, my first deal was happened to be an industrial deal that just happened. <laughs> I, I, I ran across it. And uh, one of my earliest deals was a, a cheese company that we rolled into uh, all controlling pretty much all the specialty cheeses. And since that was successful, people assumed I knew anything about food. <laughs> and so it's the disciplines of business that I think enabled me to, the disciplines of putting in proper systems and creating a culture of execution and accountability and, and performance and focus. Those are the elements that I think made these businesses work for us. And because of that first cheese acquisition, uh, we made several others And that everybody selling a consumer business was going to talk to us about it. So we became very visible to the market when something was up for sale. And we brought a lot of knowledge after a few years and understanding the space, the market, the consumer. And as a consequence, uh, we developed a certain expertise. And yes, we're private equity, but we're very focused. Generally, as you know, private equity firms, they they leverage their mm-hmm. transactions by going into 15, 20, 25, whatever, many transactions. But I'm not sure they're experts in any one. And I think we have a deep expertise in the consumer space very well. And I think that that improves the upside opportunities for us as well as the risk. And I think you mentioned to me before that, well, you did, you did mention to me before that when you're dealing with food and consumers, there's a special bond people have, an emotional bond between people and food that was different than when you said you were, I think, selling light bulbs in, uh, <laughs> in Europe. What is that difference? Well, you know, when you put something in your mouth, you feel it, you taste it, um, you develop a bond with it. And... Uh, and it isn't just functional, that are like a light bulb or a telephone or a telecommunication satellite. Uh, you relate to it. I was doing an interview not too long ago at CNBC, and there was another gentleman who was going to do an interview, and we were talking in the outer room, and he said, oh, you're, you're, the, you're the guy from Hostess. You know what? Every time I think of a Twinkie, I smile. <laughs> And you know what? He smiles. Why did he smile? At some point, and he still has them yeah. and once in a while, but he says, I don't, I don't, somehow I don't pick up on it. But I grew up and I used to enjoy that product. So when you've had pleasure with somebody, whether it's a person, a business, a toy, a car, you enjoy it. Yeah, that might have been that special thing in your lunchbox or yeah. uh, Absolutely. reward after school. Exactly. Can you tell my listeners which brands that you've turned around? I mean, there's so many, and it's surprising because it's such a, a vast array of them, but they're all such household names. Like, what are some of your favorites you've, wow. you've dabbled with in the past? And let me say, you mentioned some of them, certainly. Uh, we introduced International Delight, which was sold with White Wave at a wild m- multiple. That was the coffee, right? The coffee. Okay. We launched uh, that product was launched in through Morningstar, which was a company that was challenged back in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. That was a wonderful brand, and I use it frequently today. Um, to tell you the truth, even in the prior life, if I go to the store, I'm going to look for a Sylvania light bulb. My sons, when they go to the shelves for everything, mm-hmm. all the brands we have, 
they, I find them moving our product forward <laughs> to, on the shelf as much as possible. So we connect, uh, you know, Pam cooking sprays, uh, um, Deli, uh, Mom Champagne, Perrier Jouet Champagne, uh, Cadbury Biscuits, uh, many, many products in Europe. Um, here in the U.S., as you mentioned, PBR, Hostess, uh, there's just m- Hungry Man Dinners. We, the, the boys shot these ads with Jeremy Shockey and mm-hmm. Warren Sapp, and I just, they were great ads. And we lived them. We, uh, we, we, we've been humbled by our partnership with those brands because they had a history much longer than our own. Uh, we hope we added uh, new vitality to them to pass them on to new owners and new buyers. Uh, and so we feel a wonderful, strong connection and a humility that these brands have allowed us to express our own talents and do financially well mm-hmm. with, um, with their heritage. And it's, uh, that heritage is something that's much older than all of us. I mean, perhaps Blue River, 1844. Do you know the mm-hmm. other day I was watching a PBS, PBS little story, and it had some Westerns. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about some Western gangs that, the, and you know, they were riding into this town. It was a PBS thing, and there was a sign, Pabst, and and the and the story took place in 1876. Crazy. It was, the mom and pe- go back to the 16th centuries. I mean, wow, I'm a dot in their life's history, right? And hopefully, we've added something to their relevance and help take them to the next level of their future. I mean, going through all these these different companies, whether it's PBR, Mom Champagne, um, Chef Boyardee, or even Hostess. Is there a Metropolis playbook that you kind of take experiences uh, in? Is there a playbook to turn around these different companies, like a, a kind of a base base rule that you go by? There's two things. I mean, two general things. Many of the many companies today, and you see it with activists and all, they they need some restructuring that makes them much more gives them vitality agility, decision-making. It's based on systematic um, information as opposed to seat of the pants. It, it creates accountability. So uh, there's a whole world there that is is come in to help restructure and transform businesses. And I think that, that is happening and accelerating. Companies like 3G and ourselves mm-hmm. and a lot of the activists, they're trying to bring less bureaucracy, much more agility, leaner, meaner, more focused, invest in, uh, in technology. So the, there's a part of all this, the playbook, that it's focused on making sure the fundamentals of a good company are in place. Uh, and that's a very important part of it. The other part of it is trying to understand other brands, can they be continually evolved? Can they continually mm-hmm. evolve and engage with consumers? I must tell you, I rely a little bit on that, on my two sons, 32, 34, who have been working with me for a long time. And they have a pretty good gut feel as to millennials and what they're looking for. And we talk about almost every deal since they were in their teens. I rely on them to give me a sense of the relevance and their ability to try to transform them, particularly using social media and, uh, you know, there's some wonderful stories mm-hmm. about how to be very guerrilla marketing, field marketing, and get these as opposed to be able to pay $35 million for a Super Bowl ad, yes. which none of our brands were able to, to, to spend, particularly many of them that came out of troubled pasts. Um, Your companies would tend to do more viral guerrilla marketing versus crazy expensive commercials. What did you think of these companies and TV paying all this big money for this giant audience? Look, 
I think those commercials play a couple of roles for these large companies. I think it's just great goodwill and it, uh, awareness of the brand and just uh, that. At the same time, about three years ago, I think it was, uh, right after the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. John King from uh, CNN, yes. at mm-hmm. the Monday night, right after the Super Bowl, at the end of the, his uh, 30 um, slot, he says, you know, ladies and gentlemen, yesterday we saw the Super Bowl. These ads were costing millions and millions of dollars, and this is the number of tweets they got. And here's an ad with Will Ferrell and uh-huh. one of our brands, Old Milwaukee. That's right. Remember this. That, that got 22 million hits and cost $1,500. Wow. And so it's all about guerrilla marketing. It's all about um, Mark Wahlberg walking on the DeGeneres show with a Pabst Blue Ribbon T-shirt because he thinks it's cool. It's about... Um, or Al Roker throwing Twinkies out on the Today Show. That's huge. That's right. It's, those are the guerrilla marketing that we can afford to do. And it's more about the cultural orientation around the brands we want to build. Mm-hmm. Whereas I, I certainly don't judge uh, you know, a Budweiser or a Chrysler or one of those spending the many millions of dollars because, as, as I said, there's multiple objectives that they have with those uh, beautiful ads that they've, they've been showing. You mentioned your sons, Darren and Evan, who've been um, very involved with the companies even when they were teenagers. Yes. Coming a little bit of history there and also how do they get involved in these acquisitions? Uh, well, from young, they would travel with me as we in Europe and in the U.S. looking at various businesses. And they would often sit silently in the back listening to how we were talking about the future and the strategy and how we might change things with mm-hmm. management or even during management presentations during an acquisition. And afterwards, we would often talk about it. what are the pros, the cons. What, and they became pretty tuned in as to what it takes um, in terms of transforming them and 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 so that's how we became sort of a team and you know then we encouraged the involvement of a lot of management obviously we're not transforming these companies by ourselves but we do provide and particularly myself on the operational side of the business making sure the balance sheet is structured right um so we rely on a management team. Mm-hmm. We love management teams that are willing to take decision risks. We love management teams that rely on very good information because we've always been puzzled and surprised how macro-managed many companies are as opposed to having integrated systems in place that allow them to, uh, to have very specific information to every one of their decisions. So that has always surprised us. But at the same time, having said that, we like management that uses as much instinct because mm-hmm. they're good with, with, at what they do, plus on top of it, a succinct use of good data to make that decision and not have too many uh, focus groups and bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's, it's accountability. It's the excitement of getting something done as opposed to talking about it for six months, a new idea, a new product, uh, how to be guerrilla marketers as opposed to can we afford a $30 million ad? That's just... So we think differently. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. So far in 2017, Forbes and Podcast One have already launched three highly acclaimed shows. The interview with Steve Bertoni features the business world's most interesting names, like Adam Carolla, Twitter founder Sean Rad, and Hollywood's own Jessica Alba. So I spent a lot of my childhood in hospital and hospital beds. Under 30 with Steve Goldblum talks to the movers and shakers, like Nation Builder CEO Jim Gilliam and NFL big game winner Martellus Bennett. Guys are afraid to be themselves because of their marketing deal. And the list with Art of Charms, Jordan Harbinger. We'll get behind-the-scenes insight and 
information that doesn't make the print cut. Next up, Sports Money with Mike Ozanian talking to team owners, athletes, and industry leaders about the enterprise and money behind supreme athletic competition. Forbes on Podcast One. Not just entertaining, informative. Subscribe now at iTunes and don't forget to rate, review, and share. It's the semi-annual sale at Mattress Firm. For a limited time, get huge savings of up to $500 on our top-rated mattresses. We have more than 15 beds with over four-star ratings on sale store-wide. Like our fan-favorite Serta Memory Foam Queen mattress, now just $397. You won't find this deal anywhere else. But hurry in, this sale ends Tuesday. Your budget stretches further at Mattress Firm. Restrictions apply. Valid at participating locations only. For offer details, visit mattressfirm.com slash sale. Intuition, your, your sons as teenagers played a big role in your Chef Boyardee turnaround, correct? Yes. Uh, yeah. Tell me that story. I love that story. Oh, that story involved a declining brand. It was a billion six brand with very wonderful margins. And uh, This was canned spaghetti. Canned spaghetti, yeah. yeah. And we bought that together with Jiffy Pop and Gulden's Mustard and... Um, and uh, um, uh, Pam cooking spray, all just part mm-hmm. of American Home Products, and you know the the, the brand kept declining, and I, it was so frustrating for all of us. And I had some wonderful marketing folks and management from the original company, and we're trying to figure out how how do we turn this around? And, and it was, someone from Campbell said to me, Dean, you bought this thing. Did it ever occur to you who eats spaghetti in a can anymore, for Christ's sake? And so, uh, and I said, geez, maybe I was stupid. I, mm-hmm. but, but I couldn't stop that 8% decline. And one of the boys was driving up to Boston with teenagers sitting in the car, and they see WWF on the right side of Stanford. Yeah, right on 95. Right? 95. And they said, gee, Dad, hey. And I said, yeah, so that's our demographic for Chef Boyardee. And I said, what are you talking about? Oh, never mind, Dad. So they came back Monday after the weekend in Boston. They took our marketing guy and one of our lawyers. They went up, got a hold of Vince McMahon, who became a good, good friend afterwards. And they started running these magnificent ads with The Rock, Mankind, and some of the talent there. We'd shoot them at the studios. And they became very relevant. You know, we had jumbo meatballs for the hungry teen, <laughs> and they started to identify with all these big events that the WWF would have and always... Chef Boyardee became very relevant, and plus we innovated a Mm -hmm. lot of new products. But it was that whole connection with a a hungry young teen who's coming home from school, with, and then you identify it with with someone like The Rock or Hungry Man, and just 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 change the the profile. Yeah, you said The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock used to come and crash your house. Yeah, we've seen him there. Yes, he's a good. That's a good investment right there. Oh, he he's he was a wonderful gentleman. He was a very nice man, and I'm I'm so glad to see how his career has taken off. He's a very popular, uh, a very popular actor. He's huge. And so your sons were involved in Chef Boyardee and Pabst Blue Ribbon. Yeah, they own that company, PBR. And recently they bought the um, the Playboy Mansion, not the brand, but the mansion itself. Yes. Is that a business choice? Is that a real estate play or just? Well, um, my youngest son bought the house next door mm-hmm. to um, Hefner. Mr. Hefner owned the house next door, and his wife, the then wife, Kimberly, and mm-hmm. his two sons grew up in it. And in 08, when, uh, you know, when the, the market was, uh, my son had the opportunity to buy that at, we think, a very good value, mm-hmm. very unique property. It's, it's in Holmby Hills, uh, Eric Schmidt's across the street, and many others. And uh, this was a very unique property. He knew Mr. Hefner mm-hmm. and the boys. And um, Mr. Hefner has the right to live in it for, for as long as he lives. My son was comfortable with that, where some folks, uh, particularly a couple of in, uh, international gentlemen, uh, were offering 
many tens of millions more mm-hmm. if they could take control of, of the house right away. Right away, I see. Yeah. So my son was very comfortable with it. He's got a, the, probably the most unique uh, property there with uh, 7.8 acres yeah. right against the L.A. Country Club. And I think at one point, I think he'd like to work with Mr. Mike Milken to do a few uh, charity events nice, and yeah. so forth. But as Mr. Milken, um, as Mr. Hefner uh, uh, transitions. Um, I think that will take a very different personality. I think he wants to bring it back to its more traditional, historic uh, presence uh, in the mansion. I think it will be a unique property, and I think, I think it's. I'm sure. I'm sure he's got plans in the future. They're not, but I think he wants to use it as a as a as a platform for a lot of charitable, charitable work. I see. Well, between Twinkies, PBR, and Playboy, you're taking <laughs> me back to high school here. This is a, a <laughs> That's flashback. Great. That's great. I mean, you guys are so good at buying old brands and modernizing the old brands. These days with technology and the internet and social, there's a lot of new brands being being bought, mm. uh, being bought brought on to take on the old ones, yes. whether it's Warby Parker trying to take over the, take on the, uh, the glass companies or uh, Harry's taking over Gillette or Casper going after Sleepies and Sealies and the mattresses. Yeah. What are your opinion on these new brands springing up? Well, look, I have a better opinion about the consumer brands mm-hmm. uh, the i think a lot of them coming together because growth is hard to find the ones that you just mentioned and i think the value come becomes gets created by synergistic acquisitions so you get a lot of synergies and you get much more efficient in terms of owning the space whether it's mm-hmm. the sealies or um in the consumer space, as you know, there's been tremendous innovation over the past several years, a lot of it in the healthy category and in, in unique organic uh, type of products. And I think that's, they're wonderful. They're, they generally are small. They're very innovative. They, and our job is to watch them. Many of mm-hmm. them, hopefully, we will be part of acquiring them and putting them into existing platforms so that we can offer both a broader range of the traditional products as well as some of this new innovation. So I think it's wonderful to see a lot of these products. We are looking that number of them. In fact, I just came here from a presentation mm-hmm. by one of our bankers um, that gave us, in fact, a list of about 30 of these new businesses that have developed over the past five years. And invariably, you know, they struggled to make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of those ideas will flash out. But we think a number of them are going to be wonderful survivors that transform. I mean, maybe it's a lot harder for a craft to, to transform a multi-billion dollar business by nurturing a $50 million business. So it's nice that these entrepreneurs come up these with these wonderful ideas because they are the future to a big part. If you were kind of just finishing college now, entering the workforce, starting your first career, what do you think you would do these days, the 22-year-old Dean Metropolis? Hmm. Well, I've learned to love the private equity space because mm-hmm. I think you can transform uh, wonderfully. On the other hand, I love my early career. It gave me a ch- chance to, to travel to 140 countries, uh, travel 30 days a month. I was single, and it was um, dealing with um, cultures from India to South Africa to Latin America. I love that part of it. It fulfilled a curiosity that uh, that was just very different. So. You know, I think you should pursue. I have a friend who's a very successful businessman. Mm-hmm. His son decided to be an organic farmer. Well, you know what? If that fulfills him, God bless him. And so it's, it's uh, whatever 22-year-old Dean, I had a, a lot of curiosity uh-huh. and, uh, and restlessness, and I had to fulfill it the way I did. Um, 
And if I was that same person, I'm not sure it would change things very much. But the private equity is a wonderful place, and I'm glad my sons are in that space. And you just mentioned you know, world travel, different cultures. You yourself, you're a Boston guy, but you're an immigrant from Greece. Yes. What do you, how do you feel about this current you know, Trump administration talking about America's first, you know, dropping, you know, trying to reduce visas, reduce immigration? Like what is your, how, do you, how does that make you feel as, first of all, a very successful immigrant, but also as a business person? Well, listen. I'm very hopeful that we introduce to Washington um, some elements of new ideas. There's been a highly structured process between the Republicans, the mm-hmm. Democrats, the institutions that have been there a very long time, and they, they do require a challenge. They do ne- require, and maybe some of this public tweeting, public tweeting and all of that puts more focus on accountability, mm-hmm. and it allows them to transform. I, I just given my personality, and I'm not judging anyone, I, I would rather some things are done more diplomatically behind the scene with equal pressure and with equal forcefulness uh, mm-hmm. to make changes. And uh, I think that'd be more constructive than some of this polarization that I see taking place in our country, which I, I don't think is a very healthy thing. Mm-hmm. And let's kind of spin forward. You mentioned before your new acquisition or your new investment is in UTS, yes. which is the classic um, potato. If you're from Baltimore, you know this. It's the potato chips and the great Bachman pretzels. And what are you doing with that? And what kind of drew you to that deal? Well, we partnered with a family that started it some hundred years ago, the mm-hmm. Rice family. There's a young family member, Dylan Lissette, who's the CEO. Uh, first of all, we like the, the family, and then we think Dylan's a very sharp guy. Um, we think the opportunity is wonderful it's got critical mass up and down we bought golden flake down in uh, mississippi alabama and tennessee uh, that we put uh, putting together with this we think there's a wonderful opportunity to take these salty snacks they've introduced already a number of organic mm-hmm. versions uh, to introduce it nationally um, I think my sons have a number of ideas on how to help market uh, some niche opportunities with that. And we're all already at beginning to work closely with Dylan to, to transform the business and to put it into uh, to a, to an exciting level. It's already a wonderful company, mm-hmm. a wonderful business. And uh, I think um, with Dylan's energy and some of our history with uh, some of the knowledge we've built over the years, I think we'll help trans- build that company to another level. Does that involve similar things you did with Hostess in terms of modernization and change in logistics and distribution and shipping? Uh, it, well, this company is, isn't in trouble, mm-hmm. as was Hostess, yes. mm-hmm. so that's a big plus. So it's a, it starts at a much better place. So, But I do think we bring some skill sets to it that I think could take it to another level, indeed. Plus, as I said, Dylan will continue as the CEO. Uh, that will, I think, in a, already we've established a nice partnership to take it to to the level that we've taken many many companies in the past. Those Bachman pretzel rods, the big ones, I have like a serious problem. Like I am addicted. If I open a bag, the whole bag's gone. You can oh. ask my wife or my brother; it's just like a major <laughs> problem. But you can't find those in Manhattan. We need to get those in New York a lot. Sooner. I'll look into it right away. But those are those are special. Oh, good. Very don't good. don't take those don't take those away. Very good. Thank you. <laughs> um, and you mentioned that you, you've done a lot of brands in Europe as well. Are there some European brands that the local populations yes. had that close affinity to, like Americans did for, um, let's say, Hostess or for um, yes. you know, PBR? Yeah. Um, 
you know, there's some wonderful Euro- European brands all over the landscape. I mean, whether you're talking the wine business, whether you're talking uh, the food business, um, a lot of them are controlled within Nestle, Unilever, big companies like mm-hmm. this. And I think those companies are going to be looking to transform themselves as well, to f- to, to, to focus their energy energies on bigger ideas because they're huge companies. Yeah, massive. And, yeah, we, we're working with bankers constantly to mm-hmm. see if we can be part of that solution as they want to build global brands to give us some of the regional brands that they feel that they can't focus in on. So we, we like Europe. And what's some, can you give me examples of, is there a, a Twinkie example of Europe? Did you guys come in and kind of turn around a, a beloved brand or product? Well, we had the Premier Foods is the largest food company in the mm-hmm. UK. Uh, there was a conglomerate back in 98, 99 called Hillsdown Holdings, a multi-billion dollar mm-hmm. business that was into everything mm-hmm. uh, from the biggest furniture company in the UK to an agribusiness to a food business to just a variety of things. And we, we bought that. It was a public company. We bought it and uh, spun off and sold uh, the non-core businesses. And we had a we kept Premier Foods, built it up wonderfully. Both organic. what do they make? What do they make? Oh, they made almost everything. Okay. They made uh, from sauces, uh, food sauces. They had uh, Cadbury chocolate biscuits. Okay. Uh, they had just wonderful array of products. We took it public in uh, 2006. It's the biggest food company in the UK today. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there are a lot of wonderful brands in Europe, too. As I say, a lot of them, in order to leverage, because a, a lot of them are national, and those nations are not like the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, Germany's f- fairly large, so, but they're still a smaller somewhat. But So a lot of the brands are locked into the large companies. And uh, to, in order to leverage, you'd like to buy one of those you know, $500 million brand and build on that. And there's been a few of them. Uh, We've avoided a few that have not done mm-hmm. as well, thank goodness. Uh, so, but I think there's an opportunity to to, to look at uh, picking off some things that the big guys don't want. And besides the, the generally smaller size of the markets, are there any other big differences in operating in a Europe in Europe versus operating in the states? Oh yes, uh, significant. The most wonderful thing here in America that we have, and in fact, I was at a conference not too long ago in Europe about uh, about um, uh, startups and so on. You can transform here still. I mean, there's still some limitations. I mean, Mm -hmm. trying to solve education and trying to deal with things that prevent you from transforming the education system. A lot of companies, hostesses, old old life, Mm -hmm. uh, had a lot of contracts that prevented it from transforming. But by and large, we have found transforming American companies much easier than Europe. Europe is much more bureaucratic. Um, is that because of government stuff or just the way people's minds work or it's traditions, I guess? Yeah, it's traditions. So much more socialistic. You're going to pay people off a lot longer if you're going to terminate them. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I want to address that because, as you know, the New York Times article talked about, oh, we bought Hostess and we you know, let people go and all of that. And that's true. Unfortunately, Hostess was dead in the grave, not living, and there were no workers associated with it. And the only way it could survive, and that's what's happening more and more around the world, Mm -hmm. and certainly in the U.S., is people have to become much more efficient. We talk about automation through robotics. We talk about systems. And and if you look at, and I think you went to the plant in... uh, I did, and that was... I cover a lot of technology. That plant was like one of the coolest technology things I've ever had. Well, we See. made that possible, but you know that eliminates labor. On the other hand, 
the company was in bankruptcy. Yeah. And, and if you don't take that co- cost out of it, you're not going to survive. And we do, by the way, we sell, we export a fair amount of product into Mexico and Europe and so, and even Canada. So I'll tell you, my parents, I was an immigrant, as you say, and my parents, I saw my parents working in factories, union mm-hmm. and all that. And I have a tremendous sensitivity to that. And I, I, I'd love to show you a beautiful card, thank you card that mm-hmm. I got from the workers in the union plants that host this because we paid them bonuses when we did well. We gave them special bonuses that was not union contracts. But I'm very sensitive to the working class. Um, But the working class, we have to educate that working class and help them transform Mm -hmm. and become much more viable going forward because, and by the way, coming back to Europe, Europe is much more socialistic, much more protective of, so you can't lay off people easily. We've had businesses, my first, or my first deals was in Europe, and I was almost afraid to death I was going to lose the company because I could not lay off people in a declining sector Mm -hmm. that it was in. And if it wasn't for us migrating into a completely different business model and using that labor, I would have had to shut the door. So they're much more structured, more uh, more protective regulatory-wise of labor, Mm -hmm. and it's much more difficult to transform businesses in Europe. Um, I saw Eric Schmidt in this conference talking about even startups universities and the mm-hmm. the European environment does not allow for as much freewheeling the spirit of American entrepreneurship in the startups as, as we have in this country. And we're lucky still to a large extent in America that we're able to be as, as entrepreneurial and as agile and as we are. Yeah, I was, going back to the hostess um, situation, there were you guys revived it. There were critics saying that, oh, they're hiring less people. But all those jobs, even if it's less, those are jobs that were zero. Zero. So everything you added was better than nothing. Yeah, that's correct. And bringing the brand back yeah. is... It's very interesting. You mentioned before your parents were both in factory workers in America. What did they do um, back in your homeland of Greece? Oh, they were living in a wonderful village, having beautiful, clean air. My dad worked very hard. He had fields, uh, olives and wine and mm-hmm. wheat. And very, he, was it very rural? Yes, very rural. Yes, yeah. And, um, you know, they were certainly didn't, didn't have the pressures of day-to-day society <laughs> at the same time. They had the pressures of making a living and raising their kids. And that's the reason they left to bring us here, to give us an education and to give us a future. And uh, But on the other hand, I think they sacrificed a tremendous amount of their comfort in life to come and work 10, 12 hours a day. My father would work two days, two jobs a day, I mean, night till 1 o'clock in the morning. I mean, uh, so it was a sacrifice for them, and I'm very appreciative. Because they wanted, they wanted what, what drew them to America? I'm sorry? I'm sorry. What drew your parents? You said your family was living in this beautiful kind of village. rural Greek village. <laughs> what drew them to America? Like what, you said opportunity, but what specifically did they want to well, of it. We, we had an aunt here from 1904, 1906, mm-hmm. so she invited us to, you know, and we went through a process and we became as immigrants. In fact, we came into Ellis Island the last year wow, of okay, Ellis yeah. Island and, uh, in 56. And, um, but their main purpose was the image that America was a land of opportunity. They were aware. They were scared, obviously, because yeah. they didn't speak English. They didn't understand it. Uh, they, uh, we landed up in Watertown, Massachusetts. Right away, they had to get jobs, mm-hmm. and they were very good and mean. Do you know, recently, in fact, I visited the old factory my mother got cancer in because she was working on some chemicals. Nobody oh, knew anything about that. In what kind of factory was it? it was, um, they were curing certain leather soles mm-hmm. for shoes. Um, 
and nobody that curing process involves certain very unfriendly chemicals. Nobody knew anything about it in those days, and I saw it. It's boarded up with these old cinder blocks, and it broke my heart. That, you know, she she lived in there. Yeah, I mean, wow. for nine hours a day and on piecework. <laughs> it wasn't by the hour. It was peace. You 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 know you you made what you earned, and so anyway, I'm very sensitive to to, to labor and. Um, Somehow, I think our country uh, needs to provide better vocational support. Our education system has slipped down, way down the ranks, uh, and we have to focus on education very much to to keep our workers relevant. Because, you know, automation is gonna mm-hmm. yeah. is gonna transform their jobs. When you were a boy and Gre- a child in Greece, what did you think you're gonna do when you grew up before you moved to America? Hmm. Um, you know, I'm not so sure I knew what I was going <laughs> to come to be in America. Um, um, I had a work ethic even in my village because my dad used to work the fields and then used to be a carpenter and so forth and so on. I would be helpful all around. Um, but I'm not so sure I had enough visibility of the opportunities mm-hmm. in the world to, to know what I would do here. Uh, which village was it, and have you ever been back? Oh, yes. I've been back several times, and it's in the Peloponnesus, which, if you know, in Greece is the the, the body of Greece with the fingers mm-hmm. that go down. It's in the heart of the beautiful history of the Acadians and the Spartans right right near those regions. It's it's a history that we're proud of. of. Uh, but, you know, it's nice to enjoy the history, but you've got to earn today and it's the future. Well, that was great, Dean. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Stephen. That's it for this episode of The Forbes Interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. If you'd like to reach us, email us at interview at podcastone.com. Thanks for listening. Hello there, you. It's me, Jay Moore. You know me from the More Stories podcast. I'm a comedian, I'm an actor, and I talk to people that fascinate me, like Brandon Boyd from Incubus, super funny Jim Jeffries, Jay Leno, Charlie Sheen, Lakers owner Jeannie Buss, and a whole lot more. Download a few episodes of More Stories now. More Stories podcast every Monday. Podcast One app, iTunes, podcastone.com. It's the semi-annual sale at Mattress Firm. For a limited time, get huge savings of up to $500 on our top-rated mattresses. We have more than 15 beds with over four-star ratings on sale store-wide. Like our fan-favorite Serta Memory Foam Queen mattress, now just $397. You won't find this deal anywhere else. But hurry in, this sale ends Tuesday. Your budget stretches further at Mattress Firm. Restrictions apply. Valid at participating locations only. For offer details, visit mattressfirm.com sale. At the border. I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.